What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Guys, welcome back to another episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the information needed to improve your own general physical preparedness. Two-man show today, which is very rare. I'm not flanked by any of my co-hosts. And honestly, it's somewhat of a good thing because we won't be bogged down. It'll just be me and doctor. And that's the last one. I promise you it's going to be one and done in the doctor days, at least today. He does not appreciate that. I am here with Dave Tilly of Shift Movement Science. Dave, how are you doing today? Stay insane? What's yeah, man, we're hanging in there. Thank you for having me on. And uh, it's my pleasure to chat with you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we really, really appreciate it, honestly. So the the general scope of our discussion today is we will start very specific with um, Dave's kind of area of expertise, which is gymnastics, both, both recreational and competitive. And then we'll kind of zoom out a little bit to look at kind of sport culture and LTD, LTAD as a whole. But first off, I wanted to give Dave, a chance to kind of introduce himself. If if anyone out there has watched the podcast before, you know I'm not the best introducing kind of guy. I'm not I'm not great with introductions. I always botch it. So I want to give Dave, Dave a chance. Um, Dave, give us a rundown on kind of like education, some of the places you've been, some of the coaches that you worked with, and, and who you who would you say is is your biggest coaching influence? Yeah, for sure. So I guess the the highlighted footnote version is I did gymnastics my whole life. I competed up through level 10, which is kind of the JO, the junior Olympic system in the States here. Competed at college in college at Springfield College, um, division three school, but I loved my time there. And then also while I was there, um, got my doctorate in physical therapy and then went on to get a two year postdoctoral certification, did like a home residency for sports physical therapy. And then uh, another year after that to get my CSCS. So I kind of have all those three. I'm done taking tests. I'm over studying for uh, a test and but, uh, yeah, and I, I've been coaching since I was about 15 or 16 on a junior mentorship and I've continued coaching throughout my academic career. So kind of started with lower level gymnastics and then worked my way up to working with optional level gymnastics, uh, which is what I still do here in Boston kind of part-time. And then, yeah, just through a web of different, you know, uh, luck meets opportunity collision course with, you know, CrossFit was popular and I started getting into the powerlifting, weightlifting, um, CrossFit world with, Power Monkey Fitness. So I still kind of work with those guys. And my early career in physical therapy, along with strength conditioning, uh, course collisioned with Power Monkey Fitness and became much more, you know, friendly with Dave Durani and all those guys, Chad Vaughn, Jess Lucero, like that were there at the first camps. And so my approach to gymnastics, medical training, strength and conditioning training, all that kind of stuff was flipped on its head because I was hanging out with some elite level Olympic weightlifters uh, at my gym who are coaching very high level athletes, which I'd never seen before. I'd never lifted weights. But then also um, the medical side was very much jumping ship from the only medical stream to more of a hybrid based model of PTs also being strength coaches. And my mentors, Mike Reinald and Lenny McCreener are kind of tip of the spear when it comes terms to that model. So we were, I was very much in a melting pot of all these different things changing. And it, uh, it dramatically changed my view on what I thought I knew about gymnastics coaching and performance and sports performance on the medical side. And so the last five years has been um, my, my company shift started as a blog in that time to be like, I have to like vomit this uh, on a blog post to make sense of it. You know what I mean? And I, I also think I have a unique point of view, maybe as a coach, as an athlete, as a researcher and stuff like that. So the blog turned into a company because, uh, one, I was spending too much money on books and I needed to not put myself in more debt, but also, uh, I just, people ask like, what do you think about these things? Things are changing so fast, like in the 2013 to 15 era. So I was like, all right, I'll start doing some seminars and flash forward, you know, almost 10 years now we're in the eighth year of shift and it's, it's become quite a monster. So that's, that's the, the highlight, you know, point I work as a, a PT during the day, I coach at night, I run research and stuff with shift and shift has some really cool projects growing in kind of the, 
gymnastics, CrossFit space. I've been lucky to work with, you know, anyone from the elite and college level gymnast all the way to some CrossFit games, athletes, some very high level power lifters some very high level weightlifters. So I'm uh, kind of a meathead myself and still enjoy working out. So I kind of have the gymnastics, young kids side of the fence. Then I have like the adults who actually listen to what you say <laughs> side of the yeah. fence. <laughs> Where do you think your area of expertise the mo was the most? Like if you if you could go back and, you know, train between Olympic weightlifting or choose between weightlifting, CrossFit or gymnastics and, and you could rewind the clock, you know, 20 years, where, where would you dedicate the majority of your time? Where do you think that you would have been the best? Yeah. So what I was most interested in, and I've, I've kind of more so said this on the podcast is I was never the person who loved gymnastics. Like some people love doing gymnastics. They love competing. They love these crazy skills. Like I enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong, but I was much more in the process of, I liked the work. I liked learning the hard effort. I liked my community. My coach was amazing and taught me values that, you know, I very much take with me today. I still talk to him all the time. I enjoyed that side of it. Like the camaraderie, the team and shift, the hard work more so than competing. Um, so Gymnastics being a unique sport was hard to kind of grapple with that. But honestly, going back and especially like the last five years, I've been a lot of Olympic weightlifting. I feel like if I had found Olympic weightlifting earlier, it's hard and it's hard to tell whether I might have been more gifted towards that because, you know, my body type is definitely short and stocky. I'm, I'm very hyper mobile. And I think I had a lot of exposure to great principles, but I didn't get the great, like the best basics. I didn't have the, the best kind of like um, focused practice techniques back then. So who knows, maybe I would have been a, been a better Olympic weightlifter. Um, but that's kind of hard to tell because I started Olympic weightlifting after so many years of gymnastics that it came naturally to me. So it's kind of like hindsight is 2020. I think gymnastics was better for me in terms of the community, the work ethic, the wellness and stuff like that. So I'm not going to go back on my word. I love gymnastics. <laughs> Very true. Heavy gymnastics background, big Olympic weightlifting background. What is the best Dave Tilly CrossFit workout? What is the one that you see on the board and you're like, oh, I'm going to smash this. I'm going to crush this. Oh, my God, dude. I've smoked Diane in like two, two minutes and five seconds. Like, yeah, I, in my when I actually started to deadlift the right way, you know, so any of that stuff like <laughs> I don't do as much CrossFit anymore now these days. I'm much more in the traditional strength conditioning, uh, only because of my time constraints. But uh, yeah, back in the day, like 2015, when I was like peak after college, it was like Diane. I could dominate like Chelsea pretty easily or Cindy pretty easily. Like that stuff was not a problem for me. Yeah. So started I, like, out as I snatches. <laughs> Um, so started out as a blog. That's, that's such an interesting inception story started out as a blog. What it has shifted to what it is shifted. Ha, you like that uh -huh. as <laughs> grown to what it is today. What's what would you say the current mission statement of shift movement science is? What is the one thing that you want to accomplish? Yeah, I think it's twofold. You know, I, it started out as just trying to get more information and tools to, you know, help athletes perform better, be happier. Cause there's just so much there's just so much unnecessary suffering in a lot of youth sports, right? I think that way with any of these sports that are more just like not a lot of money, but a lot of work. I, I view like weightlifting, gymnastics, wrestling, like these very niche sports that like are just grind, you know what I mean? But they forge these as like savages. They absolutely like just come out of the other side, just monsters. And I think that those, those people get exposure to life lessons, positive role models, all the values and stuff that then make them go on to be incredible humans. Like, and I've said this on other podcasts that I firmly believe someone in these niche sports like weightlifting, gymnastics, CrossFit, whatever, are going to like learn the values that they have to go on and like go to medical school and cure cancer or like start a business that changes like world hunger, like something crazy like that. I believe that these sports, not that other sports don't, but these sports very much forge incredibly resilient and hardworking people who just do it for the better of themselves and the community. So that was the original start of, of shift and why I did it along with per, like personally, I wanted to be happier knowing what I was doing was evidence-based and working. And if I could give other people those tools, I found that other medical providers, other coaches were much happier and had a lot less, you know, stress in their life when they had tools to know how to solve problems that they, they commonly face. So it started off as that, just like, let me help myself be happier. Let me help athletes be happier. Let me help other people share this information. And in the last three years, honestly, it's become much more of a bigger, bigger than me impact of a, I have, I feel much more of a social responsibility to do the, the work necessary to help in this incredibly volatile time that a lot of us are living through, whether it's the gymnastics scandal, whether it's, you know, gymnastics is very much a microscope and a, and a, a zooming out glass of many other youth sports of kids that are getting, you know, pushed too hard. And a lot of parents who maybe are living vicariously through their kids or coaches who are maybe don't have the best moral intention and they're a minority in our sports, but we have to push them out and hold them accountable. So now I feel as though 
people have just listened to the podcast a lot more and followed me a lot. Shift has grown significantly in the last few years. And now I feel as though I have a responsibility to just do the things that I think are going to make a better legacy for the next generation of coaches, the next generation of kids. So yeah, it's, it's much more now in terms of like, a. I don't know. I don't know what the word is to say, but it feels much more, it feels much bigger than myself right now. It's not just like, Hey, I'd like to learn some stuff and like help some people. Now it's like entire countries are asking me like, Hey, we're changing our, are changing our entire system. Like, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, uh, bro, I'm this guy from Boston. <laughs> just read books. Like I'm, I'm grateful you value my opinion, but people have changed their entire gyms. Medical facilities have changed how they treat gymnasts and, and weightlifters and CrossFit because the work that Dan and I have done together. So now it's just like, fuck, I got to, oh, can I swear? Sorry about that. Oh yeah. Go for it. Yeah. It's encouraged. Yeah. Now, now I just have to be like, you know, I got, I got to like, I got to haul ass here, man. I have a rare opportunity to help a lot of people. And I really want to make sure I don't live with regret in 10 years and look back and be like, I could have done it, but I just didn't want to work hard enough, you know? So that's where I'm at now. Yeah. I think, I think that's uh it's an overwhelming feeling when you have that many people coming to you and all of a sudden you are kind of the expert, but I think you got to, from what I've seen, you got a really good, good team around you. Um, you mentioned scandal though. So let's, let's, let's circle. Let's, let's hit that one real briefly. Um, so before we kind of go into gymnastics, because you have the weightlifting background, I wanted to ask you kind of what your input is on the IWF scandal, kind of changing of, of leadership, passing around of money, all that, and how it might compare to the USAG scandal, um, of recent years. And, and one follow-up question on top of that is that is the scandal of the USG, USAG, is that something that is specific to the US or are scandals like that happening in other countries that maybe we're not hearing about? Yeah, great question. So then the first one is, I will admit that my knowledge of the weightlifting scandal is a little bit less because my head's so far in the sand mm-hmm. what I'm doing now. But my understanding of talking with people, it's, it's got a lot to do with covering off of blood doping, uh, blood doping tests. And there was a lot of money that was like kind of gone missing, like $10.5 million. It was like, where's that money, Oops. you know? And Oops. then there were, yeah. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, questionable, uh, pathways followed to get, um, the leaders in place, you know, that it was questionable whether they got elected or whether they were like, you know, stuffed a ballot box or found somebody who knows somebody. So, you know, it's, I've gotten to this point with, with my, uh, work and shift and stuff. Whereas when I was younger, I was so appalled and taken back by it. And I was like, I can't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And now it's just frustratingly, um, mundane because it's like, here's another example of power corrupting. Here's another example of, you know, the thing I hate the most, and I've probably never said this publicly in a podcast and hates a strong word. I rarely use it, but my ultimate hate is I hate when somebody in power exploits somebody else in a position of vulnerability for their own gain, right? When there's a power dynamic, whether that's in a leadership position or whether that's in a just personal relationship with coaches. I despise that when somebody uses the vulnerable state of a younger athlete or of people who are chasing an Olympic gold and they hang that over their head and they say, jump through this hoop or do this or bow down to me. And it makes me super upset because we're all people here. I don't care whether you've coached Olympians or whether you're literally just starting in your weightlifting coaching career, you should give everybody the same respect and the same honor. And you should have the same moral and ethical code that everybody else follows. So that makes me really, really, uh, hurt and it makes me feel angry. And so I feel like this scandal with weightlifting is very much, I'm a little bit numbed to it because I've gone through so much frustration and sadness watching other athletes fall apart at the hands of a very few coaches. I don't want to say that a very few minority coaches who treated them like garbage and, you know, had really their own interests ahead of the athlete's health. And they were exploiting their vulnerable situation of wanting to get the national team or wanting to perform while they're wanting to get a scholarship. So it makes me incredibly infuriated to hear of another example of someone like in our world for USAG, we had the same parallels if we clearly had, you know, um, I don't want to say his name, but the doctor. And then we had the, uh, you know, Steve Penny. And then we had the Carolis who were, I call them like the three headed snake. You know, they were all chasing different self-serving interests and were putting other people's, uh, vulnerable states at, uh, at risk. Right. So, you know, the doctor was clearly taking advantage of people sexually abusing them. The Carolis were looking the other way, turning a blind eye and were putting not even about the sexual stuff. They were putting people through horrific workouts and overtraining and pushing through injuries because of their own self-serving. I need to win. I need to be famous. This is my you know status. This is my American dream. As so many like the 30 for 30 podcast showed that with the Carolis. Yep. And then you very much had Steve Penny, who was like, clearly drunk on power, right? Hungry, wants money, wants, you know, he came from biking with the Lance Armstrong situation to USA Gymnastics and he wanted the money and the power. So all these people are are self-serving interests and they're putting the athlete's lifetime of work and sacrificing their childhood 
uh, at risk for that. And along with like, again, there were some coaches in that um, arena who were doing the best thing by their kid. Amy Borman and Simone is the best example. They did exactly what they needed to do to protect her and, and keep her safe and try to like help her through that. Unfortunately, there were still a lot of problems that came up with her uh, because USAG failed to protect her during those times. But there are examples of people who are doing the right thing, treating kids well, and we all need collectively as a majority in same way that the, the, the weightlifting scandal has to happen too, is the people who are doing it well and who have a spine to stand up against those people who are not acting well, they have to be the ones to band together and push that minority out of the sport and overhaul the, the institutional level things that are allowing that to happen, which is, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of other things around long-term athletic development and early specialization and medical care and science-based practices. But a lot of those things set the stage for an implosion uh, to come about with like this massive scandal, right? And then your second question about, is this worldwide? Yes, it is. Because what we saw happen is we had the entire scandal and it's still falling apart, it's still unfolding. But then we had Jennifer Say in the Netflix uh, documentary, Athlete A came out and it very much uncovered the real issues, which is, you know, you the, the, the sexual assault stuff is horrific on a level that's on, it's hard to understand, but we have to realize that a culture from the, eight, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s of this win at all costs, money and medals are more important than health, you know, collateral damage is acceptable because it's gymnastics, it's the way we've always done it. That like really trash mentality set the stage for him to have his like predatory influence on people. And so we have to, th that documentary, I think did a great job of highlighting how awful the clearly the sexual abuse stuff was, but then not letting people off the hook of saying yes, but look at all these other things that caused this, this, this horrific mentality of training young kids and how we have to change in this minority group of coaches who are famous and get status and money and metal and are doing it for the wrong reasons. That documentary came out and exploited all of that and showed that for what it is or exposed that, sorry, for what it is. And that had a huge amplification effect and it gave air cover for many other gymnasts in other countries to stand up and say, Hey, this is not just a U.S. thing. This is happening everywhere. And I'm, I'm lucky to be connected with and friends with people who have started the Gymnastics Alliance movement. So we have people in Australia, people in the United Kingdom, people in Canada who have spoken up and said, hey, this is like a, a, a worldwide level wide. It's not just the elite level. This is a huge problem across the entire sport because people looked at the U.S. and saw the Corollis and them being, quote unquote, successful, which I wouldn't agree is successful. And they did the same thing in their country pockets. And that that brought about the exact same chaos of overtraining and pushing too young and, you know, um, psychological warfare and you're not hurt, but you're not tired. You're just lazy, blah, blah, blah. This is just trash culture. So it, now we're seeing it unfold very much so of, of a worldwide, uh, you know, issue of everybody trying to overhaul. So there's an independent investigation in the UK. There's an independent investigation in the U and uh, the Australia. Um, unfortunately the U S has not launched one, but there's a lot of people who are, you know, rightfully so putting the hot plate to, you know, people who are maybe not acting in line with what we know is morally and ethically right. Yeah. And something you said that I want to it's it's around the Corollis. Do you remember the exact uh, name of that 30 for 30 episode? Yeah. Heavy metals, heavy metals. That was it. So uh, just around kind of the training as a whole in gymnastics, some of the dog that has existed there around how you're supposed to train a youth gymnast, the level that you're supposed to train them, like you said, overtraining, running them into the ground. Is that an issue with kind of gymnastics as a whole? Are we starting that at a young age? Is that recreational competitive is it both is it all of the above where does that kind of where does that culture of overtraining and this is the way that it needs to be done where does that start yeah so i, I think largely it came from a few things one was a pure we didn't know what we didn't know. The science was not available 20 years ago. We have great studies now about the long-term outcomes for early specialization and long-term and athletic development models that are that way and pushing that younger generation. And I also will say that all things considered with, I'm a, I'm a, I'm definitely on the pedestal of a later peaking age and longer, you know, longer models of that. But I do think that gymnastics still leans towards the, the distribution curve earlier of a little bit earlier peaking, not as early as what we're doing now. And we've collected some data that's insane when you look at who specializes, how young. But I do think it's going to be a slightly less based on your goals and your stuff like that. But I think the long tail window, it needs to be extended much more past the 15, 16, 17 peak age. Um, so with that in mind, I think it came from a lack of education. We didn't know. And now we do know. I think it also very much came from not only the Corollis, but many other people in that camp that just arbitrarily said, if you want to be successful at gymnastics, you have to be very tiny and very lean and very young because it wasn't about their mentality in that time, from my understanding from the heavy metals podcast was not so much that that's when you're athletically at your peak physiologically, you are just easier to spot. 
and you're easier to teach skills. And then really what we found is you're easier to control. You're easier to, you know, push around and say, do this and do that. And you can get them into a military style training. And that was arbitrarily brought to be success because a few athletes from that generation were successful in that model, but they, I don't think they were successful because of that model. They were successful despite that model. I think they were savages and they got through it because they're elite athletes and they would have gotten through that, you know, any other way. And they just took, they were durable. You know what I mean? They held up to the test. So the people that were success stories in that generation became the model, quote unquote, of Caroli saying, you know, oh, everybody has to be tiny and young and 14. And this is when you peak. And when in reality, we found out, which is, oh, that's actually eating disorders. That's actually overtraining. That's actually just covering up and sweeping injuries under the rug and saying, no, you're not hurt. No, you're not tired. Keep working harder. This is what it takes. This is what it takes. And very much uh, grooming the parents into that mentality of, you know, this is what it takes. You can't come in the gym. You can't watch. How dare you question me? I'm the coach. Like all the things that we know are horrific coaching practices are now coming to light. And yes, there were Olympic medals under the Corollis that came multiple times in multiple success. But would that same thing have happened if we supported the athletes and coached them well and used science and use interdisciplinary care and use the right tools that we know would have been possible. And I think, yes, I think that if we had coaches, uh, a group of coaches that were doing things correctly and well, I still think those athletes would have gone on to become incredible athletes. I think Simone still would be Simone. I think that, you know, all those high level athletes would have still gone on to do great things. I think we wrongfully had a uh, causation, not correlation situation where we, we blamed and said X equals Y hard coaching, dictatorship type coaching equals Olympic medals and success, not, you know, the multiple other factors and variables that go into that. So I think that what we're seeing is it's changing now because there's so many good examples of amazing coaches who are doing the right thing. But that culture, that mentality, the fear of the unknown is still very much existent and it's hard to push out because it changes uncomfortable. But also too, when you dig down through the layers is something I've gone through as a personal coach and I've seen other people go through is when you really get all the way down to it, it's, it's just basic human psychology of the insecurities, the fears that the coach has, the parent has, the athlete has that are really, you know, the, the root issue you have. And if you want to change the culture, you have to change yourself first. You have to deal with why am I pushing the kids so hard? Why am I yelling at kids? You know, am I tying my status to their accomplishments? Am I worried financially? I'm not going to make money. So I have to win this competition or all that kind of stuff. When you get into that layer, you figure out that's what's going on. You know, the, the fear of social judgment, the fear of uh, rejection, insecurities around their coaching style or their performance and their status and stuff like that. It becomes at risk and vulnerable when you get to that high level. You don't want to have people say you're falling apart as a coach because your kids aren't winning. So you push them super hard and you cover up those injuries and you maybe make some decisions that you're not proud of. And that's where we get into this really hot water. Yeah. And maybe it was my own naivety. I think when when I was when I was told how gymnastics culture and how gymnastics development kind of went along, I was told the things that you were saying there, like overtrain them very young, push out puberty as long as possible, maintain that small body size, that small body weight, as that will be more favorable for gymnastics. But that never really made sense to me. This is a very strength and power sport. You need to be resilient. You need to have the ability to absorb those forces. So delaying puberty, under eating, overtraining seemed very counterintuitive. It seemed not very kind of like evidence based. And it was my own fault for not digging into the research and not understanding it more. But you're someone and I don't know if you're alone in the field or if you have other individuals that are pushing that evidence based practice. Are you kind of do you see yourself as the leading force on evidence based practice or are those other individuals that are kind of alongside you that are helping you out? Yeah, to the first point, I want to agree and say the exact same thing is that I was very much I'll say I was brainwashed when I was a younger coach. I was doing I did the exact thing that I think people fall trapped to, which is get involved, get some talented athletes and you want them to do well. And so you just ask for help and you get mentorship and you very much fall into this trap of doing whatever somebody else does and following the myth and the folklore and the passed down knowledge, which is valuable. Don't get me wrong more, but you can't only follow that blindly. You have to also look at the empirical evidence. You have to work hard. And what we had is continual evidence-based practice being pushed off to the side because it conflicted what personal values and approaches were. So the evidence was in, it was across aligned with someone's coaching a philosophy or approach. And that was, that made them defensive because of maybe an ego thing or because they didn't want to look like they didn't know what they were doing. 
And it very much became, I'm not going to listen to that because that's going to say, say that I don't know it all. And that was a self-defense thing. The exact same reason why gymnastics coaches don't hire strength and conditioning coaches and nutritionists and mental health providers to be on their team full time. They just do it all. They get too much put on their plate. So I want to say that I've been through that and I understand it. And then I think we're seeing the shift happen now because people are realizing that despite those approaches seeming successful 20 years ago, we have a massive attrition rate, a massive burnout rate. We have huge injury rates, a lot of stalled performance of kids that start when they're juniors and don't make it to senior level because of all this stuff. So people are like, okay, I did follow what you said. And all I got were back fractures and burnout. And my gym was losing money because everyone's quitting and it's too hard. Like what the hell's going on here? And you realize that those people were successful because they just punish. They just abuse the kids and they found a way to cover it up. Not everybody, a small minority, but the ones that like were successful and we made the model after that was why we got into that hot water. So now what we're seeing is honestly, it's grassroots movement of people who are frustrated because they're doing what they're supposed to do, quote unquote, of just body weight conditioning and lots of high reps and lots of high hours. And all they're getting in return is kids that are frustrated and hurt and overworked and very, very tired and resentful towards the coaching mentality. So I think that's what made shifts take off more was luck meets opportunity. Whereas like, I was just like in that position, I was like, dude, I'm trying everything I've been taught and people are still hurt. And I'm really frustrated. I feel like trash as a coach because everyone's just angry with me all the time and I'm resentful. And I'm trying to be this hardcore dictatorship type coaching that's supposed to make people successful. And all I'm getting is pissed off kids and parents. That's all I get. You know, I'm not getting high level success. I'm getting kids that break down and quit before they get to their goals. So that's when I started leaning more towards the evidence again, it, it's, it looks like just me, but I have an amazing team of people around me who have taught me. I have some of the best mentors in the world. I have Mike and Lenny on the medical side who are phenomenal. I have some of the best strength conditioning coaches who have taught me everything from like, you know, uh, Andy Tish, who was Matt Frazier's Olympic lifting coach back at the OTC. He was the one who taught me how to weightlift along with Dave Bacardi. So like I had them helping me out with like weightlifting. Right. And then I have some of the best gymnastics coaches I've been lucky to talk with, like Nick Ruddick. And I've been really fortunate to learn from other people who are have coached at the elite international level and consult with entire countries and federations. I have not produced an elite level gymnast, nor do I want to. That's not my passion. But they have taught me the things they do. And they firmly a thousand percent believe in what I'm saying in the science. And not only do they believe in it, they say it works on the national and international elite stage. So it's like, OK, it's me maybe sharing the information, but it's really Mike and Lenny and Nick. And I work with Dr. Casey, who's the new women's team national position. She's incredible. Dr. Cruz on the men's side, he's incredible pumping out research. So I think that I also have people on shift side, like my, you know, Becky and Taylor who just make it look like I'm doing a lot more because they're so helpful to me. So it's really all of these people that are helping me behind the scenes, teaching me, like, don't get me wrong. I do read a lot of books and I spend a lot of time doing my own innovative work and trying to come up with the best protocols and stuff like that. But it's collectively everyone's thought process because everybody as a unit is just fed up. You know what I mean? That's, that's the sense that I get is like everybody that I've talked to on my podcast with elite level gymnasts or coaches or NCAA, everybody universally is like, this sucks. I'm not as happy as I should be. The sport is so amazing, but we are just tr doing it completely wrong. There has to be a better way. And so that's why I feel like my work and my podcast has been successful with evidence-based practice because people want to know what the last 20 years of research have said. And that's what's so frustrating is this has been around for 20 years. Like Dr. Sands was writing studies in 2000, 2005, that era about gymnast lifting weights and about long-term athletic development. And many other people were saying like, this is available. Why gymnastics don't you change? And there's like, nah, gymnastics is different. Like, ah, I mean, we don't need to, you know what I mean? Like you don't understand, you don't get it. And then you have people like me and Nick and Dr. Casey, people who actually were gymnasts, did college gymnastics and are still involved in the coaching side and go, no, actually I do get it. No, actually I, I actually have been there and I'm still telling you this is not working as well as it should be. And so that's kind of where the movement towards evidence-based practice came from. But then now the sport is just so hard. The sport is just so complicated that coaches, coaches, I am empathetic towards coaches because I'm still one. They get asked to be too many things. They get so much is dumped on their plate. They're overworked and underpaid. They have parents squawking in their ears. They have colleges squawking at them. They have no time to read an, an evidence base like the lead. They don't understand this terminology, right? It's very hard for them. So that's where shift kind of filled that, that change, that gap about like, okay, here's all the geeky stuff. Here's what it means practically. Here's how we use it practically. Just you do the work to actually try and change and I'll help you along the way. But there's a lot of people in the evidence-based world from medical providers, nutritionists, mental health providers that we're seeing a lot of rise from social media and other things go well. So there is a lot more resources available, but it's definitely, it it's, it's continues to be an, 
a frustrating uphill battle, if I'm being honest, you know what I mean? Like it's still very hard because you, you get this sense of, of mild hopelessness and, and frustration when you keep working so hard. I'm working super hard. My team's working super hard. All the doctors I know, Nick, all the coaches that are great coaches are working super hard. And still you have institutions that refuse to take accountability for what happened or people that are refused to admit their mistakes and say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Let me change. Or you still see massive injustices and massive amounts of unnecessary suffering with this old school mentality that refuses to change. And, you know, at, at one point, some of us are just like, bro, unless you change, unless you hold somebody accountable, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing? Here? Yeah. This is so frustrating because yeah. we're trying so hard to help and you refuse to have a real honest conversation. You just keep putting out PR stunts. And it's like, you know, it's, it's getting better. People are changing, but I know a lot of people who are just like, I'm doing everything I can. And this is still massively frustrating. So baby steps, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And what I think about a lot and what I lament is, is what you talked about, the attrition and the injury rate, because, you know, I live with my fiance, who's a gymnastics coach and our roommate, who's also a gymnastics coach. She was a level 10 as well. And she couldn't continue because her wrists and her elbows were so messed up from training. And I hear her training schedule. Oh, you know, she talks casually, you know, I would, I would wake up and I would go train for, you know, three, three, four hours in the morning. And then after school, I would train, you know, another three, four hours in the evening as well. And I'm like, how old were you at this point? She was like, Oh, you know, I was like 13, 14. Like, this is un unbelievable to train that much at that age. And you're here saying, you know, what, you know, there, there might be a better way here. Um, my fiance self selfishly asked the question here. So I'm going to I'm going to throw it in so I don't get beat up. So I don't get put in the dog fire, house fire out place. in the out in the dog <laughs> dog cage. Um, so a phrase that is often used at the gym that she works at, um, a gym that's been around for, I believe, 30 years now, um, is that you should be able to do it when you're tired. So the phrase of do it when you're tired. So run a couple laps, get severely winded. Now take a tumbling pass, do a, do a bunch of pushups, you know, blow out your arms and, and, and now go vault. And to yeah. me, as yeah. as an SNC guy, I'm like, that's insane. That is, uh, this is skill acquisition for, you know, eight to 14 year olds here. Do it when you're tired seems very counterintuitive. Let's hear the Dave Tilly response to that. Yeah. So, and it all ties together very well, right? And these are all just different examples of taking on the myth and the folklore blindly, right? And then not cross-referencing or cross-checking is this in line with the evidence? Is it the best practice? And I think this is a problem that I had that many other coaches have is when you only surround yourself who are singing your praises and saying you're awesome and not wanting to stand up and ask you, maybe you have a different opinion. All you get is an echo chamber. You hear the same thing over and over and over again. Right. And so this has to deal with the injury things she was talking about, the metabolic stuff, which I'll answer. But like, this is a classic example of like your elbows and your wrists hurting like crazy because the evidence says, don't peak too early. Let's not try to make an elite athlete during puberty because their bones are not formed. And let's also maybe use strength conditioning, ex external loading, because this is a really good way to micro dose weight bearing tolerance to build up the, the strength of the elbows, the knees, especially when they can't do high skill volume because they're going to get growth plate injuries. Right. And so that's, again, the folklore is no, don't worry about it. Just push through it. This is, this is normal. Growth plates, normal fractures are normal. Spiny fractures are normal. No big deal. Don't use weights. You're going to get bulky. You're going to lose your flexibility. You're going to get hurt, blah, blah, blah. All this like clearly wrong evidence, right? And not only that, it's the evidence actually says the opposite. So that just propagated the culture. And the same thing has happened with the metabolic side, the transitioning side. And I remember um, I'm really good friends with Chris Hinshaw, who was like Matt Frazier yep. and, and catching daughter's endurance coach. And so I went to Power Monkey Camp and I like sat in on his first basic energy systems lecture. And I was 10 years into coaching at this point. And I was like, I have never heard any of this. None of this. I've never heard about anime capacity and lactate clearing and stacking and working all this stuff. I'm like, where the hell was this in my coaching education? Right. They were like, do floor routines until your legs get tired and then do a dismount. That's a good idea. And I was like, yeah. And I watched people just tearing their ACLs left and right. Right. And so I started to like, okay, I'm going to put the stuff that I knew. I'm like, literally I got taught. If you want to get endurance for gymnastics, you should do water down sets, then do half sets, then do back-to-back -back half sets, then do some sled pushes in your sets, and then you should just do back-to-back -back full floor routines. That was the evidence-based practice for gymnastics cardio, along with running circuits and these long, grueling morning sessions. And all I found is that what we were doing is we were either exposing them to high-risk, high-skill uh, acquisition periods of fatigue, or we were asking them to do really long aerobic circuits that just make them look hot and sweaty, and that must be working because they're hot and tired and sweaty. You know, like, success. Right. And then Chris taught me and I learned so much more about like 
training specifically the anaerobic window and training metabolic repeats and training lactate clearing and training these systems that work in those things and then funneling those in a periodization point of view to the things that are successful of like floor routines, like tumbling into a pit a couple of times and doing some like lunges and some squat jumps and handstand walks to very much teach the systems how to work anaerobically. And so this is another classic example of, you know, what has been passed down year after year after year in gymnastics and what quote unquote works. And I've seen the best programs in the world of the quote gurus who are teaching all these cardio things. And I'm like, bro, that doesn't really have that much evidence support for it. And like, I think that if you just tried a four to six week periodization block with proper, you know, bike intervals and proper, you know, lactate clearing stacking workouts, I think you'd be less hurt. Girls wouldn't be landing short and blowing their ankles out and also just fatiguing so much in their routines. And now we're starting to see it more and more where I think really good strength coaches are starting to get involved because coaches are asking for help. And you're seeing some really great coaches who are actually producing evidence-based metabolic, uh, you know, three to six month periodization funnels to go from general aerobic work to specific lactate repeats and specific anaerobic window stuff and actually building someone's anaerobic capacity and clearance or buffering capabilities and then asking them to do a floor routine or a bar routine. And so that's like, a prime example of, again, what was passed on over and over and over again was only passed down because there was nobody being willing and able to say, maybe I don't know the best evidence, or maybe I'm not willing to put in the work and read there. And I learned from a lot of people, you know, Jay Lydon and Chris Hinshaw and many other people. And I started playing around with those things. And I was like, damn, this is definitely working and kids are less hurt. But that's, I mean, it's happened with the it's happened with everything. It's happened with training hours, with with um, year-long athletic development and taking an off-season. It's happened with later peaking. It's happened with flexibility methods, strength conditioning, nutrition. There's so many things that I feel like one of the solutions is overhauling the education system, as we'll talk about. There's so many things that I feel like if we just combined our knowledge of Coaches need to pass down their technical knowledge of how to teach your chanko and how to tumble. That's gold. I've learned so much from some of the best coaches like that. But you definitely shouldn't be asking them for nutrition advice or for strength yeah. coaching advice, right? Or for mental health advice or for all these other things that are clearly in like a physiologist or a mental health or a doctor per, per point of view. So if if coaches, the newer coaches are very open to it now. But if there are coaches or parents or medical providers or anybody, I'm not just painting coaches that aren't willing to work in interdisciplinary teams and have that mindset, then they're, they have to leave. They have to be asked to leave. There's no way about it. That's the NGB's roles to say, hey, change or you're suspended. We're not going to let you hurt kids anymore. And that's the role there. But it also takes the individual's responsibility to say, like, I, I realize I don't know enough. I'm going to change. And usually it comes in the form of an emotional catalyst. Mine was the coaches that I work with saying, like, we actually hate being around you because you have an ego. The kids saying like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm quitting because I'm hurt all the time and you're super frustrating to work with. And you clearly just want this for your own Instagram reel, not for what's best for me. And that hurt so bad that I changed. Right. And like a lot of people go through that now with the gymnastics Alliance movement, be like, oh, no, I actually hated you for 10 years. I didn't. I only did it. I wanted my goals and a scholarship, but I actually hated every moment with you. And I'm still working yeah. with athletes like I can't wait to get to college. I hate this gym that I'm a part of. I'm just hurting all the time. I just want to go. And so long winded answer. But it's just classic example of different paradigms of you know, following what has always been done and what is 20 years ahead of you and not really being open-minded to cross-examination instead of like putting in the work and the time and the effort and the humility to read research and try things and be okay with fear of the unknown. And I've created a little bit of, of a hypothetical here um, that could either be your dream or this could be your nightmare. So let me know. So if we wake up tomorrow and Dave Tilly is the head, you are the head honcho of USAG's elite development. So stars, hopes, tops, whatever, whatever you feel most confident speaking on. What does that development curriculum that you just talked about, what does that actually look like? And first of all, is that your dream or is that your nightmare job? No, it's not my dream. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's not. Um. I had some involvement with when I was like 2013, 14, 15, I started to have my consulting interactions, whatever you have with national team and stuff. And like I said, there are some incredible people at that level, not only here in the USA, but UK, the Australia, although whatever it is, there's amazing people that gave me hope, honestly, like, um, Tammy and, um, Sarin Salcianu are one of the first people that kind of believed in what I was doing, even though it was so like against the grain and I will forever be indebted to them because of what they did exposure wise, but they are just good people and, and their athletes and their, in their gymnasts are very, very successful, but also they love them like family. So not everybody that I interacted with was, I like, you know, like, Ooh, I don't know if I like this, but the closer I got to some of like the inner ring, the farther I wanted to get away. I was like, this is not worth it, man. This is like, I'm, I'm the only medical provider here and I'm getting treated like garbage right now when I go to these clinics and stuff. And I don't want to be a part of this. And I think I can have a better impact on some other people, but I just, yeah, I think that they weren't ready to change or hear an open opinion, but now things are getting much better with the, the new staff they have. But 
to your question, no, I'm not the person for that. That is not what I'm passionate about. That's not what I love. Um, I find a lot of value and gratitude from serving, you know, these, the grassroots kind of level and stuff like that. So I've done some consulting work and I've worked with Dr. Casey and other people, and I have interacted with a lot of those athletes, but I, I'm not the guy right now to be the head of, I, I just hate management too. Like I'm not the guy to oversee and do political stuff in management. Like the second it smells like a political game back and forth or a PR stunt, I'm like, get, get that crap out of here. Like I'm so done. I'm, I'm pretty like straight, straight on. Let's deal with the real issues. Let's help people. So I, I don't think I'd like to be that person, but I do think I have some valuable inputs and I have done a lot of consulting work with multiple countries and organizations or colleges or whatever about what I think will change the, the needle positively. So the three things that I can think of is we definitely need to overhaul the educational systems for new and for existing coaches. I think that is, I, I, I would say 85% of the people in gymnastics coaches and, and other people are amazing humans who just got really terrible education. They wanted, they, they just needed help. They needed tools. And what they got was this very shoddy, what we call Congress, which was essentially like a, a weekly, a week long event where it's like presenters and stuff. And some of the information was amazing, but some of the presenters were not vetted. They were not evidence-based. They were not like the things they were saying had no fact check. They were just like, okay, this worked for like this one talented, super flexible girl with no, with unlimited hip mobility. So do these 55 drills and they go back and they try them like, this isn't working at all. And that was it. That was it. You know, like good luck. So I think that most people just need better education and they just didn't get it. So if I feel, I feel that if we really want to see significant change, there should be a mandatory one year, um, combination of academic and mentoring program to become a gymnastics coach at the recreational or the basic level. So you need to not only take coursework in child psychology, child development, um, you know, strength and conditioning, flexibility, uh, you know, long-term athletic development, flexibility, all that kind of stuff, basic anatomy, physiology. Um, there should be an academic component to it and you should take it. You should pass tests. You should make sure it's the course instructor should be very high level, either coaching success with metal success and also, you know, like human level people like them. They're good coaches. They're good people. Like Amy Borman should teach the teach a session. You know, we should have these great coaches like Tammy and Seren who teach great sessions on the, the gymnastics stuff. Like you need to learn how to spot and have drill progressions and conditioning and all that kind of stuff. You need that. But then also there should be a parallel mentorship program. Whereas here's the 75 people that we have vetted and trusted and believe in our philosophies and will teach you the right things, but are good humans find one of them and you have do five hours, 10 hours per week of shadowing for four months to learn all their ways and know how to teach these things. So I think for a year, you need that. If you'd like to go to the level 10, the elite, the college level, you should have another year of advanced coursework of high level physiology, high level, you know, like um, strength conditioning and all that kind of stuff. So I think that has to happen. And I also think that we need continuing education. And it's kind of like the medical stuff is where you should be required to learn from these courses. The NGB should put out new courses with new evidence. They should invest money for the best experts to teach these things and help them get to the practical level. But you should be required yearly to take ongoing education. So like that's until that comes along, I don't think that's going to there's no dent that's going to change that way. So that needs to be like standard. And I know they're actually working on that now, like some of the new leadership at USAG I've, I've touched base with, and they're actually really great people who are doing a better job. And I think they're trying to move towards that. They've kind of pushed out some of the old, the old guard, so to speak. Um, so that's one, two is I think we need like a mandatory ethical and moral code, right? There has to be a standard set of principles. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. This will get you suspended. This is an infraction, but you know, this is how you handle these hard situations. And again, back to education, I think a lot of coaches just don't know how to properly handle some hard conversations about the kids aren't motivated. The parents are squawking in my ear. Early recruiting is a problem. I don't know how to help with this athlete get stronger or they're always like, you know, financial struggles in a gym. Like they need help more than they need getting attacked. So I think like you need to have those things in place, but like it has to be like a foot in the sand about like, no, if you do this, you will not get you know, your opportunity to coach again. And I think we're seeing that now with like Meg Haney, for example, was suspended for eight years, but there's still a lot of behavior at meets and at practices and at gyms. It's unacceptable. And gym clubs need to hold their staff accountable. Peers need to hold each other accountable. Like we all need to do better of self-policing and, and self-policing ourselves as well to have the same ethical code for everyone to live by. And it doesn't matter if you've been to the Olympics, if you overtrain somebody and push them through an injury or go against medical advice, or you're, you're just pushing someone super hard when they're going through puberty and you have a lot of injuries, you're going to get sanctioned and you're going to get violated for that. Cause that's not the way to do it. That's not how we treat kids. So like, that's, that's another one too. Um, is that I not the job of a uh, safe sport right now? 
It's partially. Yeah, partially. I think safe sport is growing more involved a little bit, but I think they're definitely leaning more on the sexual abuse, uh, you know, which is super important, but they need to be, there's more coming along with emotional and physical abuse, but it needs to be much, much more, um, stringent than it is now. It seems like they've bitten off more than they can chew safe sport as kind of like an organization. It's a monumental job. So I definitely understand they're going through, but, um, at the same time, I think that it's challenging to do that, but at the same time, that's, that's what needs to be done. You know what I mean? Like you need to have that backbone and that spine to stand up against things that are unjust because they've lost trust in the community because there's still people who are doing the wrong thing and getting away with it. There are still people as part of all the organizations, not just UAGSAG that were part of that old school mentality. And maybe they have changed and I don't know them, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there's still people who are doing misbehaving and not acting appropriately that are not getting held accountable for the things they're doing. So I think that's a part of it. I think safe sport has done a better job of, of making channels and funnels to report abuse allegations, but there needs to be independent investigations. You need to have checks and balances. You need to have all that kind of stuff if you want to be successful and get the trust back in the community. And I think, you know, I work at a YMCA. I've worked there for the last eight years because early on in my career, I didn't, I just didn't feel good. It just didn't feel right. The, the alignment of morals and values of the gyms that I were working at with USAG were not in line with my personal values. So I dipped and I was like, I'm not going to work for gyms like this anymore until we change. And I've been there for eight years. It's been great, but they need to do the same thing of establishing rules and ethics and guidelines and, and anonymous complaint channels. And we don't want this to be a witch hunt, which I think, unfortunately, sometimes it becomes, whereas, you know, you can definitely get some crazy parents or crazy coaches or crazy athletes who maybe feel slighted and they don't take, uh, you know, responsibility. And I don't want to at all downplay the reality that, you know, people have complaints and they should go, but there are definitely some situations where like a crazy parent has said, a coach has been disrespectful or blah, blah, blah. When in reality, like they just need to be maybe more self-aware of their actions as a parent. So there are some very small cases when that happens, but you don't want to risk sliding that and not having reporting. You had to report everything. You have to take everything seriously. People's experiences and stories are valid and we need to follow them through. But there's a fine line to toe there between coaches feeling like, you know, things are crazy and, but it should be crazy. <laughs> We've done some pretty crappy things in the last 20 years. So we deserve to kind of get our feet held to the fire. Absolutely. Yeah. You had, you said you had a third aspect of that curriculum for us. Oh yeah. Um, I think that people, thanks for reminding me that I, I got off on a, I derailed you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing is, is kind of what we talked about already is people need to be not scared of the unknown. I think people are really fearful of the unknown of like, we need to completely like rethink our model of gymnastics in terms of like when we ask kids to peak, when we ask about strength conditioning, like everything from longer timelines of periods to hybrid strength conditioning models to proper nutrition working in interdisciplinary teams, education, like it's a massive overhaul that needs to happen. And I think people need to be okay taking that, you know, punch on the chin for a couple of years, maybe in a performance point of view, whether it's locally at your competitive level or nationally, internationally, you have to be willing to take that hit to build a new model that clearly follows the evidence and expert coaching opinion that has everybody involved in the same page. And to change that in your gym is massively scary. So I think people need to just realize that, change is hard. Fear of the unknown is real. Like, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have some social pressure. You're going to do some things that are not in line with the, the, the current social quo, but that's what it takes to, to rebuild after 20 years, 30 years of destruction is we need something that's radically different. And that's happening right now, thankfully. But until you're open-minded to being like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to swallow capital and financial gain for two years, or I'm going to swallow competitive success for two years to make brand new systems and overhaul, which is what we're doing in our gym right now, until you can have that courage and that spine to stand on, uh, it's not going to happen. So the entire sport across the world needs to say like, we need something new. Let's support each other. Let's do what's best for everybody. And then we'll get back to, Hey, can we have a high level competition and who's the best country and stuff like that? Boom. Yeah. I think that financial hit is a huge one for the biggest gyms in the world and for these smaller gyms, because how you pay the bills is you put out elite level gymnasts. That's what attracts people to your gym. You get more sure. people paying tuition. And, and what you're saying is, Hey, listen, like we got to take a step back. Can't emphasize that. But what you're promoting, if I'm getting you right here is there is the possibility of building a curriculum, building a program, a culture around gymnastics that not only maximizes athletic development, but also respects that long-term athlete development model. Right? Yeah. And from a business point of view too, you know, what really makes good financial long-term success is treating people well, is, is treating people well and providing a great service, whether that's recreational, competitive, non, whatever, because I promise you the majority of your money is going to come from the 99.9% .9 of people who don't go elite in gymnastics and don't have that. So find coaches who treat kids well, 
build programs that keep kids healthy and safe and making progress towards their goals. And what you lose in temporary financial or growth success, because maybe you're changing things and you actually may drive it. We drove away a ton of people who were not online with us, not changing to be super hardcore and pushing and yelling and screaming and scholarships and all that kind of stuff. When we switched our model significantly five years ago, a lot of people left, a lot of parents were unhappy. We're like, okay, this just isn't a good fit. But long-term we gained that money back and that time back and that commitment back 20 fold because we cared about the kids who stayed and we attracted new people that were like, huh, they don't yell. They don't scream. They don't, you know, but my kid's still really healthy and happy and they love gymnastics and friends and community. So long-term business investment, if you're a smart business person, you'll realize that just treating people well and being a good human is the best financial ROI you can have. Does that 0.1% become a larger percentage if we start changing the model? If we can reduce the attrition rate within the sport of gymnastics, do we see more elite level gymnasts? I firmly believe yes. And I think Nick would say this too. There's nobody in the planet, gymnastics or not, who does better when they're getting trashed all the time. You know, nobody performs better when all you hear is negative. No, 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 you suck. It's not good enough, blah, blah, blah. Like who in the world wants to go to the gym for 16, 20, 25 hours a week when they're just getting yelled at all the time and treated like garbage, like nobody, right? I firmly believe there are hundreds, if not thousands of level eight, level nine, level 10 gymnasts who had incredible potential but got their legs chopped out from underneath them and couldn't get back because of so many injuries and pushing too early and not being patient in this environment that was pressing too hard on them. We put these kids on a hamster wheel of success when they're young in gymnastics and we expect them to be better, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. Win this meet, win this meet, win hopes, win elite qualifiers, win qualifiers, win the junior national championships, make the senior team, make the senior team, make it to the world, make it to the Olympics, win two Olympics, win four Olympics. Like it's never good enough. It's never good enough ever. And like who, who realistically is ever going to fit that mold? Even Simone, who's the best in the world, no right. doubt the GOAT, still is never going to be that perfect model. So if, if she's having a tough time and she gets injuries and she has problems, how in the hell do we expect all these kids to do the exact same thing? So I think that we, I've seen so many gymnasts that non-competitively have just not been able to stay in gymnastics because of injuries and mental burnout and, and the pressure from the system holistically that we lost a huge opportunity to teach them valuable lessons and go on and be great humans in life. And if they just stayed in the sport and been healthy, community would have been amazing. They would have learned so much life values. But then on the competitive side, I can't tell, I've had some level tens in going to college that have cumulatively lost two and a half years of training due to injury. So they've had two surgeries. They have so much problems. They lose these four to six month gaps. What could you do with two and a half months back of gymnastics training or any training? Like you can make someone a monster. And like, that's got to be viewed at it is like slow now, fast later. Like Tom Meadows I had in the podcast, one of the most successful men's coaches in the country. He's had a kid on the team, Olympic team, and he was the head coach four years in a row. So four quads in a row. He's had someone on and he's the number one proponent of go slower when they're growing. Don't push it. Be easy. Teach them values. Make them good humans. And clearly it's successful. And we think that guys are different. They peak a little bit later, but there's no reason we can adopt that model to be peaking later, going through college later. And there's a whole ball of wax with college recruiting and stuff and NCAA. But there's no reason that we can't have 22, 24, 26, 28 level, you know, age gymnasts going well. Ellie Black, Becky Downey, Michaela Skinner, Simone Biles, Allie Raisman, the list goes on and on and on. Think about all the people that are very high level in gymnastics that are later ages. And we just have never entertained that idea. We've never allowed a culture that lets them get through 10 to 14 safely, not push them super hard, and then maybe start peaking them and growing them more at 16 plus. But Ellie's strength coach was just on the podcast this week and he's started working with Ellie when she was 16 for weightlifting. And she's been doing it one to two times a week for the last 10 years. And she's been to three Olympic games. Like, well, maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we should maybe. listen to Ellie. <laughs> you know, like maybe we should. It's like, no, that's an outlier. Like, I don't think so. Every college team lifts, every single college team lifts and has a period of schedule and does things later. Like, mm, I think maybe we're on some, why can't 12 year olds do it? And it seems like a no brainer for some of these coaches. You're a gymnastics coach. You love the sport of gymnastics. It's been your entire life. Here's a model to where we can create happier, healthier, and even more importantly, because this is what makes your money more skilled gymnasts. But you with your model, the evidence-based model, there's still that resistance. I know there's still that resistance. I worked in strength conditioning for a year. I got that same resistance, rowing coach, cheer coach, baseball coach. It didn't matter. The strength stuff, that, that stuff doesn't matter. It's all on the field. So, and I'm, there's a lot of strength coaches that are going to watch this and they're going to want to know kind of your, how do you go about saying, introducing this stuff to the coaches, yeah. getting through to them? Cause a lot of them have very thick skulls. Yeah. And I want to definitely 
hold everybody accountable and say this is an everybody problem. Like there's, like I said, minority of coaches are the ones who are not the great people that we're talking about. 85% are good people, just got bad education, need help, right? Which is why shift exists. But there are definitely a lot of medical providers who I, uh, think are just going through the motions when they treat a gymnast. They don't really know the evidence-based practice and they don't really go above and beyond to understand the sport. So they get crappy medical care. And there's also strength coaches like we talked about. I've had many college programs, like like college programs who I never thought would entertain weightlifting. And they were like, you know what? I th- we're going to try it. We're going to try it. And you know what they get when they go to the strength program room? A football program. They go to the strength convention room and they get a weightlifting program for football players because the GA is the one leading it because the head strength coach is too busy and he's got another team. There's two kids in the weight room that he can't manage. And so he hands it off to the GA and and that person gives them a program. And the girls are like, uh, one, I'm super sore. Like I'm doing way too much volume, mega sore, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And they, they come back tired and more cranky injury wise because they're doing heavier deadlifts or there's front squatting and they have no idea how to do it properly. Right? So to the person and Duesh Podell is our head of uh, fitness here at uh, champion. And he's done an amazing job with the elite guys that come, the college girls that come. It's just like, keep it simple, man. Start basic. Like the training age for gymnasts in the weight room is zero, if not maybe a little bit here and there. So like their dose, it's good thing. Their dose response is going to be so high. You're going to get so much for your investment because they just spend a little bit of time, but you don't need to go crazy with their advanced, you know, contrast training and like super crazy sled sprint drills and like all these ridiculous plyo circuits. Like you don't, you need, what you need to do is you need to keep it basic and you need to fill in the gaps of their training that you know, they're not doing direct glute training with hinging, right? Like single leg weighted hip lifts, uh, upper back strength and vertical or horizontal rowing, because not a lot of gymnasts do direct pulling. So like fill in those gaps, dynamic stability, some basic Turkish get-ups, some basic split spot pelvis position stuff, some basic anaerobic conditioning with bike sprints, like nothing crazy. And I think that you can get trust in the door like that for three to six months, but go to practice, watch what they do, talk to their coaches, ask their opinions. Can you help me build a strength program? This is all of us together. Don't just kick the door in and think that you know everything because you, you listen to Charlie Weingroff's new DVD and you're the man, right? Like just because you have that under your belt doesn't mean you're going to be the best strength coach for gymnasts. You have to like really understand the demand of the sport. And I think that the best thing I did was listen. I listened to all the strength coaches, but I put on my gymnastics filtered glasses. Like I listened to Eric and Mike Boyle and Mike Reinald and all these people that are studs in the strength conditioning world and Charlie. But then I was like, okay, I'm going to take 70% of the principles and then apply them in the way that I feel is fit for gymnastics. So yeah, listen to, we've had so many good strength coaches like, um, Scott is an amazing uh, example, but we've had like Dan Lonsdale who works with high level gymnasts in the UK. There's a lot of great strength coaches who have come on and talked about how we apply the principles of strength conditioning for a gymnastic specific way. But yeah, keep it simple, basic patterns. You don't need to like, you should not be like one RMing these people. They don't need, the worst thing you can do is add a lot of like non- you know, or like more uh, lean mass that's bulky, you know, so keep the rep ranges kind of large. Don't put them to failure, you know, use movements that are really low barrier to entry and just like make it fun, make it enjoyable, make it an experience of team bonding. Cause then they'll start to be a part of the, the culture change you. And then, um, the best episode I've had, no shout out to Scott, but, um, Lou Portiazzo is the head strength conditioning coach for the women's team at Michigan. And he's had a, a quite a 10 year journey of going from just starting not really getting through to the coaches and that kind of stuff and slowly building trust over multiple classes and people who then seniors would say to the freshmen, like, I know you don't want to do this because you came in as an elite gymnast and you were saying this is not going to be helpful, but this is actually what you need. And this makes you better. This makes you a better gymnast and a, and a healthier gymnast than the coaches on board. And Lou's done an amazing job of, of helping mold that culture towards it. And now they have one of the most successful programs in the country. And I know Denver's another example that's done that. I know UCLA has done that. I know um, Utah has done that. I've been really lucky to work with these people. Every single one of them hit friction points 10 years ago when they started and just slowly built trust and communicated and worked together as a team. And now it's like one of the things they swear by uh, to be successful. Yeah. How, how long has, uh, how long has he been at Michigan? Lou, two years. 10 or 11 years. Okay. So he probably, yeah, I think that math adds up. He probably coached Carrie Pierce. Uh, possibly. Yeah. That yeah. can, that can definitely be it. Yeah. Carrie shout was out, at, uh, Michigan. Shout, shout out third place. I would say she's rather strong and conditioned. Yeah. Um, yeah. something I did want to circle back to, I don't want to, I just want to give you a chance to kind of touch on it or if there's, you feel like there was anything that we missed any other negative consequences that you've seen from this kind of arms race of early specialization. And it's, it's not just gymnastics. G- gymnastics is kind of put up on this pedestal as this like epitome of early specialization. Yeah. Here's this sport that does everything wrong. And it's not necessarily 
just gymnastics. We're seeing the same thing happen in American football, in basketball, in soccer, yeah. in uh, weightlifting. What are some of the other negative consequences that you've observed there? Yeah, I think we've we've hit on a lot of them, but obviously from the performance side of the fence, you know, think about how much time you're losing maybe with burnout, injuries, low motivation, the monotony of training, like that's just real. Um, I think so there's a lot of people who snowball off because of mental and emotional burnout and strain. And, you know, the attrition rate is what it's clearly what it is. And this is a this is an interesting thing I didn't say, but I think it's, it's an important topic is when you look at the literature on attrition rates and injury rates and surgery rates, you see an incredibly alarming rate of all those things. Right. But it's not the whole story. Gymnasts are stubborn. They're not going to speak up when they're hurt. You know, they're not going to say, you know, they quit. And like for every one to 10 gymnasts you see who make it on the competition floor, there's probably a whole host of people who might have a boot on and are not at the meet and stuff like that. So like the actually, I don't think the stats are reflective of the reality of the situation. I think a lot of it, unfortunately, is being covered up. And I was a part of a, a research group that wrote a, a large chapter in a new textbook about these kind of things. And when you look at the literature, portrayal of what's really going on. So even what we see with injuries and burnout is not the whole picture, which is where it leads to the health thing is like, there's clear mental and physical strain with a lot of mental health concerns that gymnasts have talked about with anxiety and depression. And even in some cases like suicidal tendencies, because they were so, they were pushed so hard when they were young that they couldn't like, kind of like hack it in terms of like having coping skills. And it's not their fault at all. It was the person who put that hack it mentality in there, like just be tougher, just be, just go harder, just be do it. It's like, that's, that's, ridiculous. That's it's, it's ludicrous to put on a child who's going through puberty. You know what I mean? And so I think that there's a lot of obviously injury rates. We see a lot of people with like back fractures, multiple elbow surgeries, multiple ankle surgeries. Um, and you see clear performance and health drop offs like crazy. And I think that now we're seeing like the coronavirus has given us a forced experiment of time off and what that does. And I think that, you know, the five months was two months, but six weeks is, is a, not an unrealistic thing to have gymnasts take after their their long, brutal season and have a relative deload with cross training and stuff like that. But also I, I don't know of any evidence that says that 14, 15, 16 is better for gymnasts than 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, if we're following the right scientific protocols. And again, that comes from um, very lackluster evidence that comes from a few good cases of people that made it. But even those people who made it, when you talk to them now, I think have very real concerns about their nutrition, their eating disorders, their overtraining, their injuries, all that kind of stuff. And think about like how good could those people have been if we just gave them the right environment to thrive over their younger years. And then maybe when they were 16, like Ellie started really pushing the, the, the button on how hard we get them going and giving them that kind of turbo boost with a team of people around them that want what's best for them, not what's, you know, going to make the most money or get the most status elevation. The psychological aspect of that is is enormous because you get these girls that girls and guys that burn out of gymnastics and gymnastics because they started so young. It was their entire life. They yeah. burn out on that and they burn out on physical culture altogether because that's all they've ever known. They know yes. this is physical activity. This is all I've ever had. And now my wrists, my ankles, my shoulders are so messed up. I, I just I won't do anything. I won't lift weights. Think about how many amazing athletes in other sports we're missing out on as well. Yes. There's so many God, It's crazy to me to think about how much performance and how much health benefits are left on the table because we just have not been open-minded to new ideas and radically different concepts of how we approach it. Like, God, there's so much good from gymnastics. There's so much good that comes from these. I wouldn't be here having a company and getting through some of the hard things that I've got through if it wasn't for my coach and my teammates in the sport, no doubt, hundred percent. And think about all the kids that you positively affect and stay in the sport because you just treat them well, even if their goal is to compete at low level till they're 17 years old and graduate high school and move on. Like, who gives a shit? That's fine. That's amazing. That's perfect. Awesome. You know what I mean? Like have non-recreational programs, have competitive programs, have whatever, have adult gymnastics. Like there's so much good that can happen in our sport. And we're seeing a minority of people who are making it sour grapes for everybody because we're, we're not holding them accountable and we're not keeping up with the times in terms of like science change, interdisciplinary care, new ideas, like, and, and it takes a lot of personal courage to get through that. You have to really evolve yourself as a human, but without that, we're going to keep seeing the sport struggle. And I think we're going to a really uplifting time where things are changing, but it's going to be very painful on the path to progress. So buckle in. <laughs> Something you said on the Iron Culture podcast and, and shout out to Omar and Eric, um, yeah. you you talked about how many people are getting into gymnastics now and kind of what the old stigma around it used to be like, oh, guys doing gymnastics, like what a pussy, yeah. like he must be gay or something like that and how much it's changing. And we have a coach at Gifted who who's our head of strength conditioning and he's like, 
his wife is pregnant right now. He's like gymnastics. That's going to be a gymnastics yeah. baby. And yeah. I'm the same way. I'm like, I'm like, damn, what if I had just done gymnastics when I was young? <laughs> yeah. I could have been, I could have been something. I could have been yeah. legit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, it's cool to see. I mean, that's definitely a reason. Like we talk about that a lot at like power monkey with Dave and with, you know, all these college gymnasts that are on staff that we're all like, kind of like, I don't know, just like having a, a camaraderie between our college gymnastics days. And like we were talking about, like, God, CrossFit has so much to learn about gymnastics and there's so much we're not doing well. Uh, but there's never been more of a boom around men's gymnastics and talking about the benefits of it. And I think that we gotta, we gotta, uh, nourish that and, and mentor, you know, those people who are trying to get into it. Like I have, I crazy, like 10, 15 years ago, if I was in a gym and I, again, I talked about like, yeah, I did men's gymnastics my whole life. And they'd be like, oh yeah, cool, cool, man. Yeah. Awesome. Like let's go bench. But now when I like, if I'm in a gym and I'm doing something like that, like, oh damn, you did gymnastics, man. Oh, that's so sick. That's so cool. I was like, what? Like, I'm like double. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? But yeah, it's cool now to see so many people getting involved in the men's side. And the women's side is very popular for sure. But the men's side and getting more kind of attention that way. And I think in 10 years from now, we're going to see the the end tail of that, which is a really positive net effect on the sport, which is really cool. Dave, did CrossFit make you cool? CrossFit made weightlifting cool. It made gymnastics cool. <laughs> Do you feel significantly cooler now? Because let me just no. tell you, you are. Uh, no, I don't. I don't feel cooler. Uh, I feel, I feel lucky that I got to meet a lot of people who I probably would not have interacted with. I definitely feel in, indebted in gratitude towards CrossFit, but I, I wasn't cool before. I'm not cool now. So I don't think that any, there wasn't a net change of a Delta at all. I'm just, I'm just a dude from Boston who likes books and helping people. That's kind of how I define myself. Sweet. All right. I want to be respectful of your time, but we got a hell of an outro question right here. Yes. I honestly, I haven't thought of my answer yet, so I, I might just base it off of what you say. The outro question here, Dave, is would you rather snatched like Lasha, Lasha Talahadze, world record holder, best 109 yeah. plus probably to ever live. Yeah, 222, very well on his way to 225, which is just an obscene number. Uh, yeah. Or would you rather tumble like Simone? Yeah, back in my heyday, definitely tumble like Simone. So maybe pre-21 years old, it would have been tumble like Simone because my my life was gymnastics and I loved competing. I mean, I loved training and stuff like that. So it would have been cool to tumble like Simone. Now my goals have shifted significantly uh, away from competitive. I don't have a competitive bone in my body anymore. But um, I, I, I enjoy the benefits of weightlifting still. So now I would say snatch like Lasha. Uh, prior to 21, I would say tumble like Simone. Look for a 220 kilo snatch coming from Dave. Any I, PR'd, I just PR deadlift. I never, I mean, that was it. That was a big one. It's there. It's there. <laughs> the strength is there. Just pull and pray. Yeah. yeah. Never. I've, I've, the elusive 300 cleaning jerk never happened for me. I got 290, but it's, it's on the way. Maybe it's coming. It's coming. I can tell. There's a That's resurgence. Pounds, not there's, kilos. Some, there's some strength. Pounds, not kilos. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Um, yeah. All right, Dave, anything that you want to circle back on, touch on again, as we kind of go our way here. No, I mean, my parting thoughts for people listening and, and down the road, this will kind of be posted on my site too, is, is I, I'm, I, people view me as critical of the sport, but it's only because I love it so much and because I want us to uh, come out of a dark time in a net positive. And I think that there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of, like I said, that feeling of hopelessness sometimes, but people's work is definitely going towards progress. And there are 95% of people are amazing and they're doing well and the sport deserves everything that it needs to get better. Um, so please don't take my words as like a, a negative poopy parade and gossip fest. Like I, I really am only critical because I love it so much and I want people to be happy. I think that if we have these hard conversations, people in the sport will be happier. Their mental health will be better. They'll be more fired up to be working in gymnastics. But I also think the athletes themselves will be extremely grateful and go on to do amazing things. And then it will come back around where you changed, had the harder conversations and 10 years from now, your athletes come back to the gym and they love you and they're super grateful for everything you did. And that feeling will be worth all the pain now. Phenomenal. I love that. And I think a lot of sports, not just gymnastics, a lot of sports in general can take some information from there. Um, Dave, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah. Everything for me is just shift everywhere. So shiftmovementscience.com website, blog, uh, Shift on all social channels. We put out a lot of free content. Shift's YouTube is pretty popping right now. The podcast, The Shift Show, is is definitely the fastest growing right now. We're encroaching on a quarter million views, which is pretty dope in our 100th episode. So if you're, if you're looking for the information-free stuff, there's plenty of it. Uh, I've written a lot of books I give out for free. Uh, if you want more of like the learning actual stuff, we have a, a monthly membership group, and we also have some online medical courses that I've done. So those are all available too. Awesome. And anyone who needs to find those, all of the links will be in the show notes below. So make sure to check Dave out. Give him a follow. Wealth, wealth of information there. As always, I am Ryan. 
the squad father, the father of all things squatting. You can find me on Instagram at the underscore squad father or at gifted performance. We will catch you on the next one. And as always, guys, stay gifted.